2: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again today from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 573. It's December 17th, 2010. and I was just thinking, as I said, coming to you from Arlington, Texas. Pretty soon it's going to be coming to you from somewhere in the mountains north of Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh, we're about a month to a month and a half away from being fully extracted from our current location and permanently making what has been our bug-out location our permanent home. Um, I try to say thank you to the audience a lot. I'm going to say thank you again today because without you guys supporting the show, that would not be possible. So I appreciate you guys. And as I look out my window at about um, 50 morning doves feeding on black oil sunflower seeds in my backyard... And I think about all the things we've done here, I wonder if the new homeowner is going to appreciate it or put everything back to complete suburbia after we're gone. That's their choice, though. Uh, i got a great show today lined up for you. i got calls from the audience, as usual, for a Friday, 11 great ones. One from Australia, I always like it when we get an international caller, that's kind of cool. Before we get your calls, though, I want to remind you to be on a show like this. You simply pick up a phone, a cell phone, a landline phone, any phone anywhere, And dial these numbers, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, that's T-H-I-N-K, because we encourage independent thought here at the Survival Podcast. Leave your message, you have two minutes to do that, not three, not two and a half, not four, not two minutes and one second, but two minutes flat, The machine will cut you off, and then we will get you on the air as soon as we can. Generally, we're running about two weeks behind right now. Before we bring you on, though, let's go ahead and take care of the housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you, make sure that the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, most weeks out of the year anyway. We do take a vacation or two on occasion. Um, Sponsor of the day number one today is Shelf Reliance. Note I said shelf, not self, but shelf reliance. Shelf reliance makes some of the most uh, rugged and, and most innovative food storage systems that I've ever seen that allow you to practice, eat what you store, store what you eat at a higher level. Put a can in the top, pull a can out of the bottom, keep doing that, keep your slot full, your pantry stays full, you're always eating the uh, the, the item that's been in the pantry the longest, everything's organized and neat. And whether you want a great big giant system like MyHarvest72 that can hold, you know, over a quarter ton of food or you want a simple small system to fit on your shelf, they have what you need. They also have a great assortment of, uh, long-term storage food and other great, uh, self-reliance products. But again, the company is Shelf, like a shelf you put your food on, ShelfReliance.com. Next up today, SilverAndGoldShop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont over there. Who does a great job of always making sure she takes care of you guys, and I know that because I hear from you all the time. I I don't even understand it, uh, except that I've bought from her myself, and there is something about doing business with her that does take it to another level. There is no one else that we have that when people buy from them, I get constant emails telling me how great a job she did. I mean, you think about it, you buy coins, you expect somebody to send them to you. Somehow she puts something more to it, and I'll tell you what it is. It's things like this, and I've gotten emails like this. Jack, I wanted to let you know about dealing with one of your sponsors. I ordered X number of coins from Mary Beth, made mine at silverandgoldshop.com this morning. Turns out that silver and or gold went down during the day, and she wasn't shipping until the end of the day, so she modified my order and reduced the cost of my order to, to match the current spot price when the items were shipped. I don't think any of the big companies are going to do that. I mean, let me be honest with you. I like Atmex for buying large quantities of certain things. I think they're a great company to deal with. They're not going to do that. Whatever you pay, that's what you're going to pay. I don't think she's been doing that a lot lately because the price is going up during the day, not down. The fact that she would, though, has earned her a lot of trust with me and the other members of the audience you're looking for silver and gold from a source you can trust, check out silverandgoldshop.com. Remember, silverandgoldshop.com and Shelf Reliance and all of our sponsors are available at all times on our website and banners on the right-hand margin. All right. Next up, remember to check out our gear shop. We have a lot of really cool stuff in the gear shop. Some of you guys have been watching my videos. You've been commenting on my shirts, like the one that says, hold on while I put my carbon footprint Yes, I do have a shirt that says that. You can get one, too. If you go to our gear shop and check out the snark section, you'll see some things that are scary enough right out of my head. Um, these are all available on Zazzle, and that means that they cost a little bit more, but they're one off. You can get any size, any color, any style that you want. And there's a lot of other cool stuff there. Also, remember the AOCS copper rounds. We've sold over 5,000 of them now. We only ordered 10,000 in the first run. Get yours while you can. Last but not least, consider joining the members' support brigade. Do that, and you get exclusive content available only to members. And I'll leave it at that today because I want to go ahead and take your calls right away and keep the housekeeping segment short today. Uh, again, thanks to everyone that's called in. If I haven't gotten your call on the air and you called more than, let's say, three weeks ago, you may want to call in again. Sometimes calls are unusable due to quality issues uh, or you got cut off and didn't realize it or the, you, you know you were out of range or something like that on a cell phone. So if your call is more than three weeks old and you really want it answered, give me another call, 866 think Let's go ahead and take the first caller.
0: Hey, Jack. This is Dan in Concord, North Carolina. I was watching uh, 60 Minutes last night. I saw an interview with Denver Bernanke, and he said <clears throat> when they talked about all the money they pumped into the economy, he said it's time that they weren't increasing the money supply at all, they weren't putting money, uh, they were just putting out their own funds into circulation. I was just uh, curious to see what your take was on that if you caught that interview. Thanks. Bye.
2: Well, what an awesome question, and it's an awesome question because I've been trying to remind you guys to check out a new website that we've put out called The Real Truth About Money, available at trtam.com. And it just so happens I put out an article about this very subject, and I'm going to read part of the article to you, and I'll link to the entire article for you uh, about this very subject and give you some additional thoughts on it. Again, this is an article I wrote about, I guess about two weeks ago now, uh, one of the first articles put out again on the new website trtam.com, stands for The Real Truth About Money. Uh, Chairman Ben basically says in this interview that any real reduction in unemployment will take five to six years. He also claims they are using their own reserves to execute the $600 billion of quantitative easing. The problem with this claim is that it ignores the fact that the Fed creates reserves by buying U.S. Treasury bonds. He also ignores that they buy the treasuries by simply entering numbers in a computer. This takes the bonds out of the hands of the banks, allows the Fed to now be the holder of the debt, and puts money back into the banks. None of this actually costs the Fed a single penny. Again, it is simply making a computer entry, that, and that entry creates brand new money right out of thin air. The net result is the banks are simply buying bonds short-term solely for the purposes of flipping them back to the Fed for a quick profit. In the end, the profits are simply reinvested in new bonds, which equals more debt, and it costs the Fed nothing to do this all, not a single penny. This might sound totally impossible, or at least hard to believe. Well, the Federal Reserve uh, says this is exactly how it works. The following is a quote from one of their publications called Putting It Simply. Here's the quote. When you or I write a check, there must be sufficient feds uh, funds in our account to cover the check. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check, there is no bank deposit on which that check is drawn. When the Federal Reserve writes a check, it is creating money. In the end, we the people end up owing more money to the Fed and more money to the banks and foreign governments. So basically what Chairman Bernanke is telling us is he he created trillions of dollars in new debt with the first round of quantitative easing. He did this to stimulate the economy and create jobs. It did not work. So now he's creating another $600 billion in new debt. The goal is to stimulate the economy and create jobs. It probably won't work. He is going to do it anyway. And you can, you can read the entire article and see the entire 60 minutes interview again at the, uh, at the article that I wrote on trtam.com. You can pull that up and, and take a look at it. I'll put a link in the show notes. But see, that's the thing. When the Federal Reserve makes a statement like we're using our own money to do this, where do they get their money? Where does their money come from? Well, it comes, it comes from us. They don't buy things with money. They buy things with a journal entry. A journal entry that doesn't cost them anything. And they're, lo- and, and, and they're buying these bonds. They're buying them from the, the banks that sometimes are the banks inside the Fed. There's incest here going on. Remember what we learned from Mike Gazer a while ago, too. There's something else going on here. There's banks that are doing this. They're going out and saying, okay, I'm, a, I'm at the elite banking layer. I can get money for a half a percent and I can get, you know, three, four percent on a T-bill. So they're going to the, the Fed. And they're borrowing the money and they're buying the T-bill and they're holding the T-bill for the interest. And then, you know, when it comes time to pay the piper, they're selling the bond to the Fed to pay the short-term loan. They're making the spread. They're getting, they go right back to the trough. They get another, you know, load of billions of dollars at half a percent and they go right back to the Treasury and they buy more. Simply by buying the bonds up, even if they were telling the truth when they tell you they're using their own reserves, which they're not. They are, but they're lying because of what that means. Okay, but even if it was true, even if they had money in a vault, the very act of taking the bonds out of the market allows people to cash in their position on the existing bonds. Go and if they're a banker, go back to the, the to the Fed lending house, borrow more money and convert it to long term debt in the form of bonds. And long term here being two to four and a half years, building up their cash reserves even further because they know the day of reckoning is coming. That's the incest that's really going on. And every time that little process repeats itself, again, even if the Fed was using real money, which they're not, they're still creating new money in the form of new debt. Isn't that wonderful? And the thing is, more debt, more trouble, more inflation, and guess what? it probably won't work, out of the mouth of this clown himself. Again, if you doubt that, go to tratm.com, look at the article, and then watch the entire uh, interview on 60 Minutes with Ben Bernanke. So uh, there's what's really going on there. Let's take another question.
3: Hey, Jack, my name is John. I go by Copper Night on the forum. i got a gardening question I haven't really been able to find a good answer for. Whenever you talk about gardening, you always talk about uh, creating a depression or a swale for the crops to gather the water. But uh, when you talk about squash, we always create a mound. I'm just curious if there's any particular reason for that or why that would be. Uh, if it matters, I live in eastern Washington State. The ground's pretty sandy soil. So it's, and thanks for the show. Keep up the good work.
2: Well, there's a couple things to look at with that. Um, number one, um, when you when you look at the, the mound uh, aspect of growing squash, it's a very traditional method, and it's not something that's required at all. There's no reason you have to do that. I've seen plenty of squash planted in anything from flat ground to a depression to a hill, and it's all done fairly well for itself. So it's not like you have to do that. The reasoning behind it though is that squash is a very large plant, spreads out a great deal. It has a massive root system, and the bigger that the plant gets, the bigger that the root system gets. So, if you're planting squash in flat ground and it's not very well loosened soil, very well prepared ground, the roots have a tendency to become highly constricted. So, if I build a mound, the very active, even if I just use the surrounding dirt, I don't use any kind of um, uh, compost or anything, I just dig dirt up and I make a mound, I get loosely packed soil. So, that huge root system now has the ability to move out. Since that soil's all been dug up, there's lots of nice spaces in it, so it's going to be highly moisture retentive as well. Now, if I add to my building of that mound a large amount of organic matter, um, compost, leaves, twigs, even if it's like forest gardening, and I have a clearing, and, and this is a great way to grow squash, by the way, in a clearing in a forest. If it gets enough sun, squash is a great forest plant. Why do you think it has those huge leaves? right? And in the forest, it's less likely to be attacked by vine borers because it's harder for them to find it. So I put my squash in, in, the, in the forest, and I make this big mound. And it's got all this detritus and, and leaves and sticks and twigs in it. And I've got that. And that, now I've got even more moisture retention, and I've got more space. And the bigger I make that mound, and the looser that soil's packed, the, the better that squash is going to be able to put out that massive root system. Now, think about this though. If I build the mound, that means that I've had to dig up soil. Now, if you dig a hole and put the dirt right back in the hole, what do you get? You get nothing. Right, Maybe a little bit of rise without packing it. But basically, if you're going to build a mound, you're going to have to bring the soil from somewhere else. So where do you bring it from? You bring it from the outer edges. So there's no reason we can't basically combine the two techniques here. We basically create what almost looks like a a sloping moat. And then that sloping moat comes down to our hill. And then our mound forms. And the bigger that is, the larger the outer diameter of the moat. And if we even leave it maybe one foot, uh, one foot of slope, before the mound starts to come back up. So let's say we have level ground, and then we have a drop over one foot of six inches down to the base of the mound, and then the mound comes up high over the surface of the land, does the same thing on the other side. Six inches uh, of drop, one foot wide, all the way around a circle, let's say four foot in diameter, if you have a space to work with something like that with large squash. That's a tremendous amount of additional rain catch. Now, as all that water funnels down into that moat, the, the, the subsoil is going to be, even with sandy soil, it's going to be more compact than the soil in the mound. And if you have lots of organic matter in the mound, it works just like a swale, only it's a circular swale. And all of that moisture that's, that's additional, that can't quickly, you know, run off and through the soil, will get, what will happen to it is the mound will wick it up. So, and then if we take and we just cover the whole thing so it looks flat, with mulch, so that the moat itself is full of mulch. Now the mulch itself retains more moisture, and it slowly breaks down. And basically I've got an active compost ring around my my, my squash um, uh, mound. But it's not going to hurt the roots because it's not really in direct contact with the roots. The roots are in the ground and they're in the mound, most of it anyway. And as that, that mulch breaks down, that wet hot mulch breaks down, it warms the ground, that's great for the squash, squash love heat, and it slowly leaks nutrients into the water, and the water is wicked up. In- so, See, all of a sudden we take these two conflicting technologies and we merge them together. That's permaculture. Now, I'll bet you people are doing that, and I'll bet you people have done that over and over and over again uh, to a large degree. I've not actually ever seen it done that way but I'm guaranteeing you that I didn't just come up with it right now. I've just re-come up with something that I guarantee you people are doing because it's obviously effective. It's also not far off a banana circle or a palm circle that's done in the tropics and permaculture all the time. In fact, now that I think about it, it's probably where I got the idea from. Uh, So it wasn't even an original idea for myself. But that would be a great way to do squash Let's take another question.
3: Yes, hi Jack. Uh, I wanted to call and say thank you for your show. You've taught me an awful lot my question is um i'm thinking about making hard tack and if i do that uh, is it possible to regrind that up at a later date and use it as a type of flower i've not been able to find anything online uh that can kind of direct uh, an answer to that question thank you much again thank you for your show bye
2: that's one of those uh, questions where the answer is not yes and it's not no it's sort of um you definitely can grind it up. In fact, or crush it or, or or smash it or whatever you want to. In fact, that was one of the main ways that it was used. Often uh crumbled up into some type of a soup or uh any type of a mush that could be made out of. A lot of times uh specifically during the Civil War, they would take a ration of coffee and they would soak the hardtack in some of the coffee and eat it that way, which doesn't sound real appetizing, but it's probably more appetizing than trying to eat a piece of hardtack hard especially with dental hygiene being what it was and how many people probably were missing a few teeth during the civil war. So, uh it, it, it it's a traditional thing to not eat it as a as a chunk. Now if you can grind something at all, you can grind it as fine as you want, but what you're you're going to get isn't going to really be like the original product of flour because remember there's been some things added to it. Um and uh including some fat. And the other thing is it's been cooked. So the the structure of things like the gluten in the original flour source has been changed. So you're not going to be able to take this stuff and make anything that looks like a conventional piece of bread, though you could make something closer to real bread with it, especially if you added some other things. Let's say we were out in the wilderness using some heart attack. Well, we could take some acorn meal and maybe some lamb's quarter seed, grind up hardtack, mix that together and make sort of a pan bread that's going to be a hell of a lot less hard on us to eat uh than straight hardtack and it's going to have more flavor and more characteristics and more nutrition. So you can do that way with it. But what you're really getting it's not the it's it's not that you can't do it, it's that what you're getting is it really accurately described as flour. Consider it cracker meal. So just about anything you could do with a cracker meal, you could do with ground hardtack. But you wouldn't use cracker meal to try to bake a nice fluffy loaf of bread. So there you go. Real easy one. Interesting and good question, though, and maybe it's given some people some ideas for what they can do with hardtack beyond just have a hard piece of uh, cracker biscuit. Let's go ahead and take another call.
4: Hey, Jack. This is Kevin in Oklahoma, Kevo on the forum. I just wanted to let everybody know that if you've signed up for a flexible spending account through your work that the end of the year is coming up, Flexible Spending Account, or FSA, is the pre-tax funds you can elect to pay for medical expenses, such as co-pays and prescription drugs. It's a use-it-or-lose-it type of system. This is also the last year you can get reimbursed for over-the-counter supplies. That's right. Starting January 1st, you won't be able to apply these funds to over-the-counter supplies unless prescribed by a doctor. So now's a good time to stock up. Some stuff that I've been reimbursed for recently include homeopathic remedies for colds and flu, gauze like Curlics, medical tapes, SAM splints, quick clot, blood pressure cups, uh, even some Ricola throat drops and uh, first aid kits for home and auto. Um, A good source I found is drugstore.com. They even tell you what is eligible under the FSA guidelines as you are shopping and will allow you to print uh, an FSA receipt for easy reimbursement. I'm not associated with that website in any way. Um, I have found that some prices are, are uh, some of these products are cheaper elsewhere so people need to do their due diligence I uh, just wanted to bring this up so people don't lose out on that money I also want to say thank you for the show, the forms and the MSB, they have been an immensely great resource, thanks a lot well great tip and remember
2: the FSA is good for you if you um, if you don't carry your own insurance and your total expenses out of pocket are less than $7,500 a year, uh, this, pro- this program works fairly well for people, what you do is you put your own money into an account. And then every time you spend money, you go to your employer with basically what amounts to a voucher, and then you're reimbursed for your, for your purchase with your own money. I, I'm really glad this caller called. I did not know this change was coming up, um, where anything over the counter is not covered. So it has to be doctor-related. So this this just shows the mind-numbing stupidity of the government. To use my own money tax-free for my own medical care, i got to use a doctor now. Gee, you think this has anything to do with health care reform? Really? And do you think it's going to make our doctors more or less busy to have people calling them up and going, I need a prescription for Tylenol. And the guy goes, it's over the counter. We don't do that. Uh, I just need the prescription, and then I'll go buy it myself over the counter, but I need the prescription so I can deduct it from my taxes. Uh, you know, this proves they don't want to solve any problems. I, I told you guys. I, I mean, I don't want to go on a rant here. I really don't. But I just, I'm just going to say it. I told you guys before the health care bill passed, it would pass it would pass without the public option. there would be all kinds of crap in it that would drive up the cost of your care, and within two to three years, the public would cry onto the government, Oh great master government, oh great master government, please give on to us the public option. The same people that were fighting mad against it would beg for it, not the hardcore, not the people that really understood the issue, but all the people that were tr- were drummed up. With false evidence. They were told, it's going to be a death squad. All those people that bought into that crap, not the hardcore that believed it and put it out there, but all the people that went, oh, I don't want that. I better call my congressman. As soon as they have to pay more for three or four years, they'll beg for it. And whoever's in power will give it to them. Because it's what they all want. And... Um, If you're using an FSA, spend every penny of your own money you've put in there before December 31st. Buy anything that qualifies, whether you need it or not. Do what this guy says. And this also tells you something very, very important. If you've been using an FSA, you need to right now go to your human resources department and change the allocation beginning in January. Because a lot of the things that you've been using it for, you won't be able to use it for. Again, I want to really thank the caller for that call. I had no idea that was going on. Since I walked away from the corporate world and I don't have employees anymore uh, last year, a lot of this stuff I'm out of touch with. And since I don't use an FSA myself, I had no idea. So again, caller, thank you for that. Again, drugstore.com was the website that he mentioned. I'll link to that in today's show notes, but I think that's an easy one to remember. And like he said, do your due diligence. But the fact that they give you resources to tell you what is deductible, that's a great thing. Let's go ahead and take another call.
3: Hi Jack, it's Sean in Chicago. Um, thanks for all you do. Uh, love everything, podcasts and the website and forums. Hey, listen, um, just finished watching um, the uh, food production systems DVDs, which were, were totally amazing. I recommend them to everybody. And um, I was particularly interested in um, her uh, the rabbit farming uh, section, um, and I thought, geez, that it. it it doesn't look that difficult. It does look time-consuming. There's certainly some some technical wishes that need to be followed. But uh, living up here in the Midwest um, with uh, winters and everything, just wondering how, logistically how difficult that might be to to start a small production here. Uh, and um, you know, would it have to be outside? You know, I, I've got a. a, a a garage that stays, you know, about 45 degrees. Could it be done in there over the winter time and moved out into the summer? Um, certainly grow enough of my own stuff, uh, cover crops and whatnot, that would help uh, feed. But uh, just kind of wanted your thoughts on this. Um, is it logistically possible or is it a bigger headache uh, than it seems to be? Appreciate it.
2: Thanks a lot. Good question, but you're actually better suited to raise rabbits than Marjorie is. Her biggest problem and biggest concern for the rabbits well-being and welfare is the heat of the summer, not the cold of the winter. And I know it gets much colder where you are than where she is, but um, you know, we do get pretty cold weather here in Texas. I think we get a, a reputation for being like California or something and, and we're not. We're not at all. Um, we had temperatures last year down into the single digits. Last year in, uh, I think it was February, it was either January or February, we had 11 inches of snow here in Dallas. And I'll tell you that in the central part of Texas, down there south of Austin where she's at, you would think that it's warmer than it is here. And it is in the summer, but they have colder winters than we do for some reason, and and more sustained cold temperatures than we do at certain times of the year. So uh the rabbits can handle the cold. In fact, they can handle the cold very, very well. They're cold-weather critters. I mean, if you look at where rabbits live natively, uh, they live from, you know, one part of the country to the other, honestly. There's no place where they don't live. But I remember as a kid going up into what uh, we called Up County, you know, PA, up Tioga uh, and places like that. Uh, Cameron County to hunt snowshoe hares in the late snowshoe hare season. And we would be, you know, up to our thighs going through snow in certain drifts and areas. And, you know, the rabbits were out there and it was a matter of finding this, you know, the south side of the mountain and looking for places where some forage was and trying to, you know, we worked really hard for one or two rabbits. Honestly, I don't know why we did it. I think it was some kind of, uh, of a masochistic thing, honestly, to hunt those damn things. But, uh, my point is that rabbits are cold weather animals. And if you give them a good solid nesting box with straw that's well insulated that they can go into, they'll handle the cold weather just fine. What you don't want to do is during these cold periods breed your rabbits. And if you had any breeding activity, you might be want to um, to create a hutch system where the, mo- the mother rabbit. Touch can be removed and brought inside to be protected if you were going to do that. You would probably be best suited to just not breed your rabbits in the coldest part of the year. I've read some articles by people who have gone through the, you know, the painful process of learning this. And you're going to lose it. One thing Marjorie tells you, and one thing anybody that's done any of this stuff will tell you, in the beginning you will lose animals. You're going to make mistakes. Go ahead and make them. Understand that they'll be lost. If they're animals that are healthy enough to eat, eat what you lose. If they're not, you know bury them in a hole in the backyard, and chalk it up to this is part of the learning process. It's a life. You hate for it to go to waste, but it's not going to waste if you're developing a system out of it. Um, So you will lose some animals. And one of the ways I've seen people lose animals is try to breed when it's too cold. And for some reason, mother rabbits sometimes won't put their baby bunnies in the nesting box. They will take and they will put their baby bunnies on the, the metal cage floor. And sometimes they won't bring them into the nest. And by the time you find them, they've frozen to death and died. I've read several different bloggers that have had that problem. And my gut is that they're basically being abandoned by their mother. I know as humans, we're like, we never leave our baby out in the cold. But if you think about it this way, rabbits naturally, in the wild, don't breed during that time of the year. And since everything's telling them it's not breeding time, everything's telling them I can't even though you're feeding them and they've got this little warm hole to go in, I can't get these these babies through this time. It's not the, you're throwing their circadian rhythm out of of whack. So I think in cold climates if you just don't breed your rabbits during that winter period and maybe start your, you know, you know your breeding cycle and your time, and 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 start putting your bucks with your does, um, so that when they're dropping their their babies, they're, I think they actually call baby rabbits kittens when they're dropping their kittens. Um, it'll be you know late spring or early spring, whenever it works best for you, and moving them forward. Adult rabbits are going to handle the cold though. They're just, as long as they have that place that, 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 you know, that, that refuse to go to, they're probably going to enjoy the cold more than enjoy the heat. So give it a shot. I think that again, I think you're actually better suited where you are, believe it or not, than we are down here. All right. Let's go ahead and take another call.
5: Hi, Jack. This is Paul. I've been listening to the Bible podcast since you started. Um, I live in Melbourne, Australia. Love the show. Um, I'm reasonably happy with the progress that I've been making over the last sort of five or six years. I'm out of debt and I've got um, a house out in the Country of Victoria. Love to meet any other people from Melbourne um, that are also listening to the show, um, and I'll call you with with my with my details. Um, now, my question is around my family. I'm concerned about my family. They live in the UK, and I think that the, there's a huge risk of the UK economy and going to the wall and they're just in the process of retiring and I think they're in a you know they're not going to be in a situation to be able to earn money easily um, so it's very important that they, they protect the wealth that they've got. Now um, I've been talking to my to my family and obviously they're my parents, I can't tell them what to do. But I can sort of throw things in their direction and hope that they sort of pick them up. Uh, it's probably the same as anybody really. However um um, I did throw the uh, crash course in my dad's direction, and he did watch it, and he did come back to me, and so, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense now, which is a bit sobering for me, um, but uh, um, now, my question is, um, when I was talking to to him about, well, you know, solution modes, you know, because he was interested in, you know, what should I be doing, and i I put him together a document, and I just gave him a brain dump of things that I thought he might want to do. Um, Now, when I was talking to him, um, what came out of our conversation was: there's so much information out there um, on the internet or whatever. Who do I trust? Um, What's what's worthwhile? You know, And they sort of wanting to be told by a sort of expert.
2: Okay, there's our Aussie today. And um, he called four times, and that was the best call we got with the background. There almost sounded like somebody constantly blowing a referee whistle in the background. And it was actually worse than some of the other calls. So I've used this one. And he, I guess, couldn't get all of it out in two minutes. But there's no way when a guy calls in four times, especially from Australia, that I'm not going to use one of his calls. So let me see what I can do. Because I get the gist of the problem. You've got parents in England. Uh, or the UK. I shouldn't say England. If you say UK, because maybe they're a part of uh, the UK that's not England. And I know some people get eh, about that, you know. Um, so anyway, you got these parents uh, a bit older than you. Not really have been looking out for themselves as, as a self-reliance component anyway uh, for their whole lives. Kind of waking up to the problem. Watch Chris's crash course with I think, which I think wakes anybody up to the problem, and then starts to say, but, you know, when I go look at this, I get conflicting information about what to do, and maybe it's really not that bad, and yada, yada, yada. And here's what you have to understand. It is normalcy bias. You've poked them. You've disturbed them from that 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 zombie-like slumber that most people walk through life with. They're trying to go back in. That's That's the big thing. They're trying to go back in. They want it all to be okay again. They want to reclaim the blissfulness of not knowing. You know, the blissful ignorance. That's what, because uh, you've ruined it now. Well, d- damn, I know all this stuff. What do I do about it? As, and then it's like, well, okay, I'll go look. Well, this guy says it's fine. This guy says I have to build a fort. This guy says I have to arm myself to the teeth, which I can't even do where I live. This guy says it's all going to be okay. And not to really worry about it. Maybe have three days worth of food and a bottle of water. That's easy. Maybe I'll just do that. And the rest of these guys are nuts. And some of them are nuts and some of them aren't. But they're going to gravitate to the solution that allows them to, to put themselves back to sleep as best as possible. As far as hearing from an expert, I'm going to have, to have to you know break your heart with that. I ain't an expert. I am not an expert. And anybody that says they are an expert about survival is full of crap. And I think you'll find that everybody we've brought on this show that is recognized in the media, people that are much more recognized than I am, Ron Hood, Dave Canterbury, people like that, What do they they say when somebody starts using the word expert? Whoa, 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 don't put that on me. That's bad voodoo, right? I don't want that. Because something as deep as the survival of yourself and the survival of others is something you can never know everything about. So we can speak like an expert. And that means, to me, experts make complex things easy to understand. And that's as close as any of us get to expert when it comes to survival. The reality is we all have tremendous amounts still left to learn. Where I differ and where maybe I can help you help your parents help themselves is that in the end, I do not have a system. I do not have what you're supposed to do. I have an awareness that I teach about where you're vulnerable. I have an awareness I teach about the things that you need, and I ask you to evaluate where they come from and your five primary needs, food, shelter, water, energy security and understand that all five of those components are vulnerable and then I give you all kinds of things that you can do to shore up those five vulnerabilities and then I then I do this is the big difference then I say to you you make your plan you make your decisions you own the right and responsibility over your own life Remember, rights and responsibilities are congruent. There is no right in the world that exists without a corresponding responsibility. It's another another version of duality. Masculine and feminine, dark and light, good and evil, right responsibility. Everything in our universe exists as a component of duality. It has to. Positive and negative. So, right responsibility. So, you have a right. To live. You have a right to survive. But then you have responsibilities, and those responsibilities, if you're, you know, your right is to survive, your responsibilities are all going to go around those five components. Those are the things you need. You must be secure in your place and in your person. You must be able to feed yourself. You must have clean water to drink. That's the most important one. 48 hours, you're dead. Right? You have to have energy. England gets pretty, you know, UK gets pretty cold. In the winter, you gotta be able to heat. Sometimes places get really hot. You gotta be able to cool. We gotta be able to see. We need light. In wilderness survival, they call energy fire. I call it energy because I'm talking to the general public. And without those things, we have to have shelter, the last one. Without those things, we can't make it. We have a fragility as a species. Now, at one time, this wasn't a big deal. Human beings live close to the earth. And to be blunt, there was a hell of a lot less of us. So the natural resources that were just there for the taking, if the population went beyond the resources, eventually people died and the population adjusted back down. Then came modern society, which in some ways is a mar- miraculous creation. We had organized agriculture and civil you know, civil societies and places where individual rights and property were recognized and respected. And over time, it led the population of the earth to go from a few million to six billion. But now those resources, we can't just go take them anymore. We have to be part of a distribution chain, part of a system. And if that system fails, then we all fail with it. Let me put it another way. When you are a slave, and you are part of a large group of slaves, all under one master, if the master suffers, the slaves suffer further. The first person I will, if I'm a master with a bunch of slaves, the first people I'll stop feeding are my, my lowliest slaves. And I'll work up the chain from there. And when it comes to my family, the people I really love, I'll go without before they will. And then, then me. So that's what you have to understand that in the system, you are, for lack of a better term, a slave. You are, because you're dependent. The very nature of servitude. If the the store shelf doesn't get stocked, you don't eat. No matter how much money you have, there's nowhere to go buy it. So in the end, we have to take personal responsibility for our five needs. The how is up to you individually, and to your parents, it's up to them. And also understand there's something called powdered butt syndrome. That's what Dave Ramsey, the financial guru here in the States, calls it. And what he says is basically, once you've powdered somebody's butt to change a diaper, you're not going to be taking financial advice from that person very well. So, you know, people call him, I'm trying to get my dad on the debt free program or whatever. That's what he tells them. And it doesn't matter what it is. You know, you gotta remember that one time you were a baby and everything you needed was provided to you by your parents. So for you to turn around to them and tell them, hey, you know, you need to worry about this is counterintuitive. Also, as people get older and begin to age and they start to become in touch with their mortality and think, you know, I don't want to be old. Nobody wants to be old. You know, and they want to fight to reclaim that youth. Well, anytime you start to be, to feel like, well, now I'm reversing the role, and I'm letting the the child be in charge, that's an admission of my age. My wife struggles with this. She has trouble, you know. She gets dehydrated now if she doesn't drink enough water and she stays out in the heat too much. That's called being human. But she's like, well, when I was 20, I could do that all day long and I never got sick. It doesn't matter, you know. But it's it's like an admission of age. And people have to get over that for themselves. So if it helps to hear from me, great. And let your parents listen to this. But the biggest thing I can tell them is, you know the truth. You can't deny the truth. There is always vulnerabilities in any system. You have no control over the system, but you bear full consequences if they become vulnerable and fail. So if you want the right to survive, thrive, and be well... You have a concurrent responsibility to ensure for yourself during a time of plenty that you can get through during a time of, 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 of famine. And whether it be a famine of resources or actual food doesn't matter. You have to shore up those five things. Have them listen to my show. Have them listen to the other great resources that are out there. Understand, we're all going to disagree because we all have strong opinions. No one gets into this line of work because they don't really know. They're like, oh, okay, you can do this, or you can do that. You know, we all have this passion. To do it every day, you have to have a passion. If you have a passion, you're going to have an opinion. If you have an opinion with a passion, you get strong opinions. And sometimes, even when you're giving people a choice, they don't realize it. They think you're saying, you got to do this. I'm saying you got to do something. You know the truth. You can't go back to sleep. Hope that helps. Let's take another question.
1: Hi, Jack. This is John. I'm calling from Salt Lake City, Utah. I made some bad choices a few years ago and I got myself into a little bit of a pickle. I'm hoping that you can give me some ideas. I met this girl, moved in with her. She suggested that we refinance, put my name on the mortgage. And at the time, I was kind of an emotional wreck. No excuse. It was my decision to make, and I made it. But things didn't work out. I moved out i 'm in an apartment now, but my name's still on that mortgage, and she either can't or won't refinance or you know put the house on the market or whatever. Is there anything I can do to get my name off that mortgage even if she signs a release or is there anything other than refinancing that's available? Um, any question or any comments that you could you could uh, give me on that would really be appreciated. I love the show jack you 've done so much for me so far. Um, I just I can't say enough about everything that you've done. Thanks for, for everything and, and uh, hope to hear hear from you. Uh, thanks.
2: Okay, first I'm going to tell you that you need to contact an attorney um, and maybe pay them $125 to $175 for a good one-hour phone call about all the options and you need to bounce the things that I'm going to give you off of them and see if they have any other ideas because I'm not an attorney and I'm certainly not familiar with law in your state. I think that the one easy thing that you can do that is not going to be 100% effective but may, if you're applying for a loan for a house or a car, help you in the future get past any kind of problem created by that place, more if she defaults than than if she just keeps going on the way she is, is called a quick claim deed. A quick claim deed, and uh, you can you can basically download that from the internet, fill it out, uh, you sign it, she signs it, and basically it says that you are, that she personally has taken responsibility for the property is the best way I can phrase it. Again, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know if I have that 100% right. I know it can be helpful. When I met Dorothy, um, she had been divorced, he was still living in the home, she was on the mortgage. The divorce settlement stated that basically she was not responsible for the property, but her name was still on the mortgage. And because of certain situations, just like you could not get it off, they had a quick claim deed executed. And when we went to buy our first house, even though that house was being defaulted on at the time by her ex-husband, we were able to get a mortgage and buy a house. So it can have some mitigating effect. It may have less of an effect today in in our climate now, with everything's gone on in the mortgage world than it did 18 years ago when this, when, when this went on. Just to kind of put it in perspective for you. Um, that's one option. The other option is, I think it's more that she, she won't than she can't. And a lot of times in a split relationship, one partner just has this, this desire to hurt, harm, or cause problems, or keep some kind of control over the other partner. And, and that's between the two of y'all to break it. But, And again, this you really better talk to an attorney before you go say anything like this. In the state of Texas, anyway, cohabitation and joint property equals common law marriage. Period. Okay, And that means that one party could sue the other party for divorce to settle the issue, even if you were never married. Now, how long that has to be, what property, everything like that in your state, I don't know. This is another conversation for an attorney. But if it's true, a simple letter from an attorney saying we would like to settle this without going into legal proceedings. However, under Article 2, Section 1 of the you know, Illinois State Law Code, we can do the following. And this is what we will do if we don't make fair and good attempt to uh, resolve this issue outside of court. It also seems to me that since your name is on the mortgage, you have joint rights to the property. Okay, so this is another lawyer question. Without even going into the divorce world, what are your legal rights on the property? If you're financially responsible for the property, you have legal rights to said property. And possibly you could enter into a lawsuit, and it's better to not go into the lawsuit because you don't really want this, but sometimes you need to basically hit somebody with a club to get them to pay attention to your gun, Right? See, boom, on the head. You don't want me to shoot you, do you? Right? Yeah, you got a lump on your head. Do you want to get shot? Or do you want to, you want to, you know, get out of here and leave us alone or lay on the ground till the cops get here, right? Okay, same thing. Do you want me to sue you or do you just want to resolve this issue? These are all if she just won't. She doesn't have sufficient income. Right now, refinancing is difficult to do and no bank wants to give you up as somebody they can go after. So it may be difficult for her to do. So you need to have a conversation with her about what it really is. Have you even tried? I don't want to involve an attorney. I don't know what my rights are. I'm not going to threaten you. I'm not going to be a jerk about this. But have you even tried to refinance the property? If she says yes, who have you tried it with? Can I help with the process? Can I go find someone for you, bring you the paperwork and get you to sign it? And when every reasonable effort's been made, then you get an attorney involved. But let her know, hey, you know, if you, I have, if I have, if my name's on the property, I have rights to the property. And that's, that, that I'm legally sure of. You I don't know what they are, but I'm sure you have some right to the property. You have some say so. You have some control. She doesn't just get to keep it with your, with you being responsible for it. And, And you have no rights. It doesn't work that way. At least not yet. So get it on, on the horn with an attorney, bounce those ideas off him, see if he's got any other ideas for you, but I would also have the conversation with her first, or maybe even do it at the same time, just don't tell her you're talking to an attorney yet. In fact, I would talk to the attorney and say, basically, let me pay you for a half hour to an hour of consulting, what's my first conversation, and where do we go if it fails? I think that's the best thing I could tell you to do right there. But give them my ideas and and see if that helps. And get an attorney, you know, don't just call your brother-in-law and ask him, who's that attorney you use? Get an attorney that specializes in this type of thing. You know, most of the time, if you call up any, any large law firm and say, this is kind of my problem. I need to talk to somebody. Do you have somebody that specializes in this area? They're either going to say yes and they'll put you in touch with them. Or they're going to say, no, we don't. Let's give you a referral. Attorneys refer business all over the place. Don't feel like you're being put out with the referral. They're doing it for your own good you call an attorney that specializes in lawsuits that makes, you know, the average retainer for the guy is $10,000 and, you know, their average judgment nets them 50 grand and you want to spend 150 bucks for a phone call. They're going to source you out to somebody that does that type of thing. Let's go ahead and take another call.
3: Hey Jack, Dark Sky here. Wanted to give you some good news. As of January 1st, 2011, I will have one year's worth of food. I will be completely out of debt except for a motorcycle payment, which will be paid off at the end of next year, and a student loan, and a new bug-out location that I just purchased on a four-year mortgage, which will be paid off in two years. My question is about the bug-out location. I have oak, hickory, and pine trees on the property, but I do not know when I can collect the nuts, and an easy way of getting the pine cones open to get to the nuts.
2: Thanks. Bye. Easiest question today. Um, pine cones open up and the little seeds that they call pine nuts fall out of them. Uh, oak, when the acorns fall off the tree, they're ready for use. Hickory, when the little things, the little cases that hold the hickories open up like a little flower petal and the nut falls out, they're ready to use. That's it. There's nothing else to it. Some things that might help you... Uh, with hickory extraction, if you boil hickory nuts whole and then let them cool and dry for a day, uh, when you crack them open, it's a lot easier to get the nut meats out. And they're pretty small, and it's a lot of hassle for a little bit of return, but if you want some hickory nut to use for some things, that's a good way to do it. Oak, your white oaks are best. You want to leach the tannins out. Um... Bushcraft on Fire by David Wendell, they have a whole series, Tam, his wife did, on using acorns. I'll see if I can find that, maybe put together a playlist for you and and link from the show notes to that on using the acorns. Pine nuts, here's the thing with those. Pines are a very variable tree. And some pines have, you know, pine nuts, again, they're really more of a seed than a nut, but some have ones that are great for use. And some have ones that are really not that good at all. So it's going to really be determined based on the type of pine tree that you have. But basically, when the pine cone is is ready to, to go to seed, it opens up and the nuts fall out of it. Um, one of the things you can do is watch your trees. Because <clears throat> the problem is, once they open up, a lot of times everything's gone before the pine cone hits the ground. So what you're looking for is when that, that cone is just almost fully open, you can pull it off the tree and let it dry out, and that, that way you'll get the seeds They're usually in these little helicopter-looking things. you got to break them out of there, and it all depends. I mean, some pines have these great pine nuts. A lot of the western pines and and things like that have these these awesome, and they're fairly large, and they're easy to get to, and, and they taste great. And then some of our eastern pines, like white pine and all, there's a nutritional value there, but it just doesn't have the same uh, level of value really as far as being a good harvestable food crop so depending on where you're at your pine or nuts may or may not be useful to you your acorns and hickories definitely uh, and your acorns are probably going to be your easiest yield and they're going to probably be best used as acorn flour for making bread using other grains and flours mixed together uh, for thickening stews and soups and for things like that let's go ahead and take another call
6: Hey Jack, it's John from New York. Um, thanks for everything you do. First off, uh, second off, it's my question is um,
0: uh,
6: I, I was thinking with uh, you know solar and solar battery backup and stuff. Since it's stored DC and you gotta you, you gotta go through an inverter to, inverter to to change it over to DC current, uh, wouldn't it be a little more efficient to uh, keep things at DC and and have uh, some appliances and lighting as DC. You know, I, I was listening to Cam Mather and your show with Cam Mather and, you know, you guys kind of shot down LED uh, and I think the biggest problem with LED is that you have to have an inverter on every bulb um, which means if you're running off of solar you're going from DC to AC to DC. And uh, Wouldn't it be better to just, you know, kind of go DC to DC? I know you dealing with you know dealing with various voltage on different units though so i don't know it's just something i always thought of when it came to um to solar and battery running off the of battery backup so i was wondering if that was another option and how feasible it was thank you
2: Oh, it's not just a little more efficient, it's a lot more efficient. It's a hell of a lot more efficient. Uh, and even, even forgetting about the LEDs altogether. If you, uh, if you, if you can go to DC, from DC to DC directly without any kind of conversion, then there's nothing to lose during the conversion process. And we definitely lose some energy in converting DC to AC power. So why does everybody use AC inverters? Well, because most people, by the time they they build a house with solar as part of it, or bring solar to a house that's grid-tied, or do anything like that, they already have lots of stuff. They have computers, they have TVs, they have fans. They have, you know, uh, uh, electricity, uh, what am I trying to say, stoves and refrigerators and, and everything that, you know, you need to charge and, and do stuff with is AC. So some of that stuff's hard to find a DC uh, component to replace it. And some of that stuff you can, but then I'd have to buy a new one. And then if I live in a house that's grid-tied, and if I'm not totally off-grid, uh, I have this wonderful supply of AC current directly from... Uh, the service provider, that I don't really want to convert to DC and then put all of this additional expense and headaches in. So the easy thing to do is make my solar or my wind or my combination of the two into AC so I can use it with the existing distribution uh, in my home. See, that's another thing. Uh, what? Do, how are all the plugs in my homes wired? If I want to bring straight DC current to a device in my house, I have to run new wiring. I'm not going to run DC wiring across my AC power plant. The consequences of that... Are you know potentially severe because it, it's still you know you don't know which circuit might be connected to which other circuit through which type of relay. I mean you just don't want both voltages uh, running on the same plant, even if you think you've isolated it. So uh, to do DC, I've got to now run new wiring. So I need new appliances, I need new wiring, all that other good stuff. So that's why people do it. Now when you look at people that live completely off-grid, totally 100% off-grid. Many times they run 100% on DC, or they run the majority of stuff on DC, lighting and things like that, and then they run some portion thereof on AC, because finding a computer that runs on DC, not easy to do. Finding a television set that runs on DC, not easy to do. You can find things like chest freezers that run on DC, and refrigerators that run on DC, which definitely, if you're going to go off-grid, or you're going to really mac out your solar system. If it's at all possible, you'd want to run new wiring and switch over to a DC powered refrigerator freezer type arrangement because it's a high draw, high energy device and getting that extra efficiency maximizes your production. Okay. So, and then if we still have AC power, we can use whenever the batteries are too low, we can use AC power to charge the batteries from the service provider. But we do have to run new cabling, new wiring. Cabling's a bad word for that. Wire is electricity, cables data. All right, we have to run new wiring to make that happen. So that's one of the big things, especially with a site-built uh, conventional home uh, with a slab foundation or something like that. I mean, how do you get all that new wiring in the walls? It's extremely expensive. and It usually involves opening up some walls and having to refinish them, and it's expensive, and it's time-consuming, so that's why. If you're building a brand new cabin in the woods, you should run DC and AC wiring everywhere you think you ever might need power while it's easy to do, while you're in the initial phases of construction, because you can always run one or the other then, and that would be the best scenario. I want you to think about it this way, from a wiring standpoint. Back when everybody started to get high-speed internet, and internet became a big deal, um. Cable companies that had generally been – certain I mean cabling, not like the TV people, but the people that do data work like at an office, started doing all these programs to put data wiring into homes so that you could have your router plug it into the wall with a hub and or a switch, and, and then you could go to any room in your house and plug your laptop in. And they were doing it mostly in new build, and it was very expensive to do in existing homes, but people were paying for it. And then something came along that killed that entire business. And I mean, there were big, multi-million dollar companies like Panduit and Burtek uh, and uh, Ortronics that had put together home cabling solution product lines, invested millions in this. And then they lost it all. And they had to figure out what to do with that crap, put it in small offices and stuff like that. Why? What destroyed that distribution system? Wireless networking, right? As soon as you could go out and buy a wireless uh, router for 50 bucks that was secure. You could put a little encryption code on, maybe two layers of encryption if you really wanted to, and you could run a home network without running any cable. Wireless was the way forward. In spite of some weaknesses, why? It was so expensive to put wire into existing walls. That's your big hang up right there. Wire into existing walls. All right, let's go ahead and take another one.
3: Hey Jack, uh, my name is Josh. I am from Middletown, Connecticut, about 21 years old. Uh, I was just listening to the uh, old veterans episode. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Uh, I was trying to get something set up for the veterans in my area, at least buy them a, you know, a nice steak dinner and cook them some food. Uh, I was just wondering if you had any ideas on stuff that we might be able to do for them or a nice uh, nonprofit organization that might need some help getting out there isn't really known yet. Uh, look forward to hearing from you. Good day.
2: Well, first, if anybody doubts that we have good, solid young people in this country still, the guy's 21 years old asking a question like that. Thank you so much for even caring. Um, with veterans as a whole, it, it just guys that have served and have gone on with their lives since, you know what, anything you do is enough. Cooking them a steak and saying, hey, man, I just wanted to say thank you for what you did back in the day. Come over to my place and you and a few of your buddies, and I'm going to make you guys some steaks, give you a few cold beers. I cannot tell you what that would mean. And I can't tell you how much you're going to get what I said of the the look away and, and, and the somewhat um, almost bashful response. But they're going to come and they're going to enjoy it. So with, the, with those of us who returned whole and safe, and I mean whole in body and mind, that's all we need. And that's more than we need. As long as it happens at least once, so that you know someone gives a damn. For those that have returned damaged in body and mind or in mind alone. And there's a lot of them now. And there's a lot of them still out there from prior wars that we have tend to have forgotten. There's a lot of Vietnam veterans out there that are still dealing with emotional and physical scars. There's a lot of really forgotten, really, really old men from Korea that was the Forgotten War two days after it ended that are dealing with this. And there's a few World War II vets around, but not many. We're losing that generation. And there's a whole lot of this generation coming home. And people like the Wounded Warrior Found, or Wounded Warrior Project, and and any organization like that that checks out as being legitimate, that's where you need to focus for the vets, is the guys that are, that are wounded and damaged and need help. Because our government's not doing it for them. And our government is throwing away our veterans. There's something I can't tell you about that I know right now, uh, about a dear friend who's dealing with something, and most likely because of exposure uh, to chemical agents in Vietnam. And uh, that's what they get from our government. They deserve better from our people. Our government sends them, our people expects them to go. Our people wave flags when they leave and they wave flags when they return, but it's so much so much more important that we take care of those who are damaged. And then there's another group of people that often are forgotten, the spouses and the children of these men that come home home, and they do come home and they're wounded and damaged, but that at least they came home. There's also the ones that never come home. And there is an organization that is deep in my heart called the Intrepid Fallen Heroes Fund. And they help the children and the spouses of the soldiers that never come home. Some of them never even come home in a body bag or a box because they're lost permanently on the battlefield. And that's a really open wound. And for some of these children, their fathers they went overseas and sometimes their mothers died. You know, we've lost women too, folks. Their father or their mother went overseas when they were one or two years old at a point where they really can't remember. Anything they think they remember is really a a tiny memory blended with, with hope. They've never even really known their parent and they're gone. When it comes to putting real time and real money, focus on the veterans that come home missing something of their body, missing something of their hearts and minds or that never come home and leave somebody behind. That's the best advice I can give you on that one.
0: Jack, my name's Crow. I got to listening to you a couple of weeks ago after a buddy of mine came said he'd been listening to you, and he asked me a question. You kept saying things like, make it easy, uh, using the word comfort. He wasn't quite sure, and I had never heard of you, so I don't know exactly what you meant. But I explained to him about, you're probably talking about psychological comfort. Uh, you know, a piece of candy for a kid or a handheld game or something to give you that, that feeling of normalcy in an otherwise just crappy situation. Uh, you know, you, it really can't be underestimated, the, the psychological uplift it is, to have something normal, something that says, you know, okay, I've still got this. Uh, you know, myself personally... You know, if I know the only thing I have to eat tomorrow is a dog turd and Tabasco, as long as I can wash that down with a cup of coffee and suck on a piece of hard candy, I'm okay with that. It doesn't change the, the situation at all, but psychologically it makes just a tremendous difference. And uh, I really would like to hear what you have to say about this, um, anything at all, but I was just really surprised not to hear anything about it up to now. Um, thanks for your time.
2: Well, I have to tell you, I'm not even sure exactly what I meant without knowing what episode it was and what exactly I was talking about, but you're probably spot on, especially like you said, when dealing with kids and and, and spouses that maybe hadn't mentally prepared themselves for the situation. Um, Today is episode 573 of the Survival Podcast. And sometimes when people bring up a past episode, I feel like one of them people from like, you know, Star Trek or Batman or something that's at a convention with like real fans, you know, that are hardcore and be like, in episode 121, one from 1976 you did this what were you thinking i don't know, you know? <laughs> and so i don't know exactly what episode you were you're, you're talking about but i mean that has always been a big part of what i've been about teaching people from the very beginning you know including things like making sure that you can take your pets with you because you know like you said a piece of hard candy it, it, it brings a sense of normalcy back um For a four-year-old kid ripped out of his home in the middle of a night due to an emergency that may not be going back to that home because the home might be destroyed and and losing everything, putting his arms around a golden retriever. I mean, that's that's a big comfort item. And anything we can do to give ourselves some level of psychological comfort, and that's not always just material goods. Um, I don't talk a lot about faith and spirituality on the show because I do not believe it is my... Place in this in this capacity to proselytize anybody's faith or to take away from anybody's faith, and and my beliefs are probably far different than most of you guys out there think they are. I've I've had people make some rather strange assumptions about what I believe, and I I I, that's guess that's I'm doing my job. I don't even you know you want to know. I've told you some resources you can you can check into to see kind of where my roots from my belief system are in the past, and they would be things like the work of authors like Richard Bach. Uh, and James Redfield, and Neil Donald Walsh. Um, But whether you are a Southern Baptist, or a Buddhist, or a Hindu, or a Catholic, or a Muslim, or a a pagan, or a a Wiccan, or whatever it is, all of us, except atheists, have something we believe in. And I think even an atheist has something that they believe in. Uh, It's just it's in them instead of elsewhere. And whatever that is... Having some real conviction to it and some way to pray or meditate on that belief can be a tremendous comfort as well. Even if that belief is that I have to be the one to do it, and, and there's a I don't care what your belief is, in any situation where lives are at, at risk, there is a huge truth to that belief. And whether it's that God will give you strength or whether it is that your internal spirit needs to be strengthened by your own actions, whatever that is for you, I think it's important that we have some level of what I call a spiritual grounding. uh, as a psychological comfort. And for some people, that will be reading the Psalms. And for other people, that will be simply knowing something about themselves on the inside. And whatever it is, at any level of that spectrum, don't wait until you need it to develop it. Just like we don't wait until we need food to store food. We don't wait until we need water to get water filtration and purification into our into our systems of support. Just like the way those things are, the, the spiritual balance, you need to work on that now. Whatever it may be, and hopefully nobody's upset or offended that I bring that up. And if you are tough, I mean, I say plenty of things that are far more. And I don't even know how anybody could be offensive, offended with that, but I do try to stay away from it because it can be divisive in a community where we need to have as much unity as we possibly can. Um, but like the, the the comfort items, like the candies and things like that, yeah, that matters. A book. You know, be it the spiritual side of things or just a book that you can reflect with. Because a lot of times in a disaster, we have to, it's like combat in a way. Hours of boredom separated by minutes of, of, of total fear. A lot of guys that go into combat, that's what they deal with. They deal with days and days of just sitting around thinking about the danger, 15 minutes of the danger at peak, and then they go back and a day later they're back into, you know, a relatively safe position. And dealing with the psychological effect of that cycle. Well, disasters can be the same way. The tornado's coming. We gotta get the hell in the basement. And then the house is gone. And now we're dealing with the aftermath and we're living at a friend's house and, or whatever it is. From, from a big disaster, uh, as far as the national level, like the, the geographic size to a small disaster that's a huge disaster for us. And anything we can do to improve that psychological comfort is huge. Anything we can do for the people that maybe are not as strong or prepared as us is also huge. Simple things like a deck of playing cards. I mean, I know when I was deployed as a soldier, I knew we were in any kind of real harm's way or anything, but still, there's the, the the boredom and the being out there, and you know, being able to sit down and play a game of spades was a big thing in the military, um, or dominoes or something like that. There was a there was a, and it also because you were so far away and living in such different circumstances. And if you think about disasters, that's one of the things that happens. We have to go away from where we're comfortable, and we have to live under different circumstances. Being able to do anything that brings you back to that ground and gives you hope, and that's what it's really about. I think most people can deal with any pain or any tragedy as long as they still believe there is a chance to get back to some sense of happiness and joy and safety in their lives. The minute we lose hope... That's when we really have a problem. And a lot of those comfort items, what they do is they restore some level of hope so that we can strengthen that internal spirit and we can persevere. Great question, great point. Let's take another one.
1: Hey, Jack. My name is Dave. I have uh, several orange and lemon trees on my property, and I can't eat them all or give them away. Uh, My question is, should I let them fall to the ground as mulch, or could that be bad for the trees? Or should I just throw them into the trash to prevent any um, injuries to the trees? Also, do you have any ideas of what I could do with all the extra fruit? All
3: right, thank you.
2: Okay, well, first I want you to know that you just made probably some members of this audience cry. I mean, they're like, oh, my God, I can't even grow anything that resembles a citrus fruit where I'm at. And this guy wants to throw them away or turn them into compost. Uh, let me see if I can help you with a couple things. One, uh, let's start with the lemons. Lemon juice stores damn near forever. It's a great commodity. You could probably sell it in local markets as organically grown lemon juice for some insane price. So by getting some type of a juicer and making up your own organic lemon juice and selling it into like, you know, just go look and find like some gourmet cooking shops or something like that. You could probably sell the hell out of that locally. Uh, orange juice doesn't store forever, so maybe it's a seasonal little thing, sideline of business. Now all you're left with is rinds, and those will compost very well. If you just decide I can't get rid of them and you want to uh, to, to to use them uh, for compost, uh, you need to maybe the best thing to do would be at least cut them in half and throw them into a compost pile. Uh, please don't throw them away. There's got to be somebody somewhere that could use those. Honest to God, there just has to be. Um, additionally, you could I, I do want to say if you do, are they, if they are going to go to waste, you don't want to leave them laying around on the ground. Because uh, that is perfect fruit fly um, uh, environment. And you're going to propagate a large uh, quantity of local fruit flies by leaving that large quantity of rotting fruit on the ground. You're not going to have any break in the cycle of the development from maggot to fly. So that's that's a concern if you leave them on the ground. And that's a bigger concern than anything they would do to the trees directly just by being there and rotting. Um, some other things I think you could do, though. Let's say that you don't, want, you don't want the hassle. You just don't care about the few bucks you could make by selling organic lemon juice or whatever. Call up some local um, uh, food uh, you know, banks and say, look, here's what I've got. I've got these orange trees and lemon trees. Uh, we'll throw them in bags, send somebody, and they probably will send somebody by to pick them up. Um, I guarantee you there's always somebody that can use the food that you can't. Uh, but as far as for for your own use, if you just like you say you can't eat them all, and I understand. I mean, one big orange tree and, and oranges expire and go out. You know, they don't they don't last forever. Same thing with lemons. It, it might be very difficult to use them all at once, but there are a lot of things you could do with oranges. You can make orange marmalade. Oranges dehydrate. I mean, I think that's something that people really lose track of. Is what you could do is get yourself a meat slicer. Maybe not for all of them. Maybe there's way too many to do all of them. But if you wanted to save some, get yourself a cheap meat slicer. It's the best way to cut them up and get them all uniform. Start tossing them through there. You know, cut them about you know a quarter inch thick. Throw them on a dehydrator. And you know what you do with those? You can, you can cook with them. You can do all kinds of things with them. But one great thing to do with them is take a big handful of them. You put them into a gallon of water. And you sweeten that with white sugar or honey. And you get orange aid. And it's freaking awesome. You do the same thing with the lemon. So there are ways to store them other than fresh. And dehydration is a great, simple, inexpensive, low energy use way to do that. And I think if you look at all of those, there's something that can be done with it. The big thing is, folks, when you get a surplus of something, and if it's beyond even what you wish to store, I promise you there's a hungry mouth somewhere that would be grateful for it. I don't care if you put them in bags and start walking around the street and handing them out to homeless people. You're better off giving a homeless guy a dozen oranges than giving them a dozen dollars. At least one's going to result in nutrition. I promise you there's a place to give these things away if you'll look beyond your neighbors. Your neighbors probably don't want them because you probably live in a place where everybody's got orange and orange and lemon trees. You're probably in South Florida. My guess would be South Florida or South Southern California is, is where you're at. Um, you didn't say so, I don't know, but it would be probably one of those two places. And if you're in a place where at that time of year at they're just everywhere, well obviously it's difficult to give them away to people that don't need them. I promise you there's somebody somewhere that needs them. The interesting thing with the lemon juice is that would be shippable. Um, you might even be able to do something like find a local internet entrepreneur and say, here's the deal, you sell it, I will bring you everything jarred up and ready to go. And, and we split the profits. You get the inventory for zero cost, and we get, you know, 10%, 20%, 30% for you running the business and us providing the commodity. Uh, you might be surprised at how many guys are in there have no interest in the product itself, really, but could easily slap something together like that for you um, or selling it. Again, I think that the easiest answer, if you wanted to do that, would be some kind of a local gourmet shop or something like that, privately, individually owned. Um, Cash business, if you get my point there. Uh, You might be shocked at what a four-ounce bottle of organic lemon juice is really worth. You might be really shocked about that. All right, with that, uh, that does wrap up today's show. And I think this was a really great show. There was a lot of great diverse questions today. Remember, if you'd like to be on a show like this, 866-65-THINK, again, 866-65-THINK, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's
0: on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like there's nothing I can do.